Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Stocks for beginners. Yeah, so many times that we just see kind of the, the squigglies on the screen and you're like, oh, you know, they're doing really good the last, you know, few quarters. But then you like go in there and you kind of crack the nut and you sort of say, well, I don't know if I really see what's going on. And then there are some companies that their line is kind of flat, but their dividend yield super high. And you're like, oh, hey, let me look at this company and everything's rock solid. You know, really smart group of guys. They're, you know, taking more and more market share. But you, they're, they're not on CNBC every day and they're not on the Reddit boards. For me, it's, it's debt focused, right? Because as soon as rates start to climb back up, you know, we're going to see that kind of hit the door. Companies are going to start, you know, defaulting. Hi, and welcome back to Stocks for Beginners. I'm Phil Muscatello, and today we're talking about M&A, which stands for Mergers and Acquisitions. It's something you'll come across as you learn about stocks, especially when they're taken over. My guest today is Hunter Alamand, Managing Partner of Mariah Consulting. Hello, Hunter. Hey, how's it going, Phil? I really appreciate you having me on today. I appreciate you coming on. Hunter, you grew up in a tiny town of 600 people. We haven't got the name of that town, by the way. What was the name of that town? Oh, yeah. So I grew up in Miami, Texas. Uh, you yeah. know, when you grow up in a town that small, you hardly ever share the name with anybody because they don't know where it's at. <laughs> <laughs> but now you're in uh, Lubbock, Buddy Holly yeah. town. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Buddy Holly's town. Yeah, yeah. And you've been interested in business since being a toddler. <laughs> How did that work? <laughs> yeah, so it's kind of funny to hear like stories from my parents and my grandparents talk about me as a little kid. You know, I would go to work with my dad. He's an auctioneer. So, you know, cattle sales and things like that. And I'd be yeah. hanging out with the old men, chewing the fat, talking about cattle prices and, you know, just had a fascination for productive discussion. Right. And from there, I got interested in making money and working for those old guys. And so that kind of just blossomed a business relationship, whether it be as an employee or anything, you know, it's that value exchange. A young man's be kind of tough to make it in the cattle business. Oh, that, mu- that must have been lovely. Must have been a real pleasant attitude. I mean, they must have loved a kid that was uh, taking interest in what they were they were doing as well. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that I've kind of always gone against the grain in that way, you know, especially I hear it all the time about people my age, you know, I'm 23 years old. And kind of making, you know, some serious waves. But at the same time, I, I come across this, you know, attitude about people that are my age and, you know, their perspective. And, you know, I understand. I think we live in a society of instant gratification. But it, it, I think where people get messed up is they want to think it's our generation. But it's people that kind of fall into that, you know, trap of like getting too involved in technology. So, yeah, I think I've always just kind of been a holistic person, right? And just loved having relationships with people. And that's that's what's gotten me you know, where I'm at in business today is you making friends and following up with those and just kind of letting those networks kind of grow. Yeah, that's one of my policies on this podcast. We don't talk about uh, millennials or Gen Zs or boomers or anything. I think they're, <laughs> they're words that divide us rather than bring us together as people. Yeah, absolutely. I, I mean, and that, that is true. That's exactly what I like to think. There is no kind of age. You know, it's really hard to, you know, quantify somebody's experience just in the terms that they lived mm, upon yes. years, right? <laughs> I, I met a lot of old people that didn't know nothing. So you like stocks and you've liked stocks from a very early age. 
How did you actually start trading at 11 years of age? Yeah. So, um, you know, I'm like a kid of the recession, right? I, like about the time I was 10 years old is when the housing crisis started. And, uh, you know, being that value exchange guy, I loved watching the news, even as like a little 10 year old, you know, I'd get, get up in the morning and watch Good Morning America. And then that progressed into, you know, watching financial news. And yeah, I've been an avid fan of Bloomberg since about 2010. It's so exciting, though. You know, you had so much going on. You know, it seemed like the world was going to end from one perspective. You had like kind of the gold bug saying this was all it, the Obama election. And there was it was so interesting. Right. Or you could have been focused on YouTubers and video games, which were also, you know, wildly successful. So I I think that there's a lot of people in my generation that got picked up and into this like, you know, hey, this recession is huge and there's a lot to learn from this. And, you know, yeah. That's where I got started. Um, my grandma actually set me set up an E-Trade account for me, a custodial account, and that's how I started. I think, you know, the best kind of the best way to learn is like by cutting your teeth and, uh, you know, just started putting the money I'd make mowing lawns or helping clean out barns or whatever on there. And, uh, yeah, it just started to grow, and I started investing. And, you know, obviously that money, I tapped into it whenever I needed to go out on a date or anything like that. So, it was a great way to just kind of make some passive income on the side, like as a kid, which is crazy. So what was the first stock that you bought? Do you remember? So Netflix. Yeah, yeah, I do remember. It's Netflix. Netflix. It was, oh. I think like nine. Yeah, it's usually, nine usually Disney, Disney's the one that uh, the kids go for first, but uh, yeah, you're a bit more advanced than that. Yeah. yeah so yeah, it was totally on the trend. I, I, my like average, I think at that time was like $9 and some change. So yeah, I really regret losing a lot of that position just over time. But, you know, that just shows you how important it is to have those diamond hands, right? And, yeah, really hold on and let those things just play out because, yeah, Netflix at nine was a great buy. <laughs> and you were swapping them for some of the uh, stock for dates as you got into the teen years, did you? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. And now, now I'm looking at it and it's like, wow. But, yeah. hey, it's whatever. You know, you live and you learn. And I feel like it, it's massively important to have learned those lessons as a kid because, you know, getting where it's a little bit more serious and you're talking about putting, you know, portions of your income into a portfolio. It's so important to understand what that time can do for you. I've, I've, I've seen it, I've learned it. And also, you know, I've learned about this, you know, speculation bubble way before there was a bubble, right? Mm. There, there have been people, the stock gurus have existed this whole time. They just haven't been so pervasive. Right. And so, you know, not, not only did I have good trades, like getting AMD at sub $10 and getting Netflix at $10 a share, I've also had experiences where I've got into penny stocks, tried to get rich quick and, you know, blown up my account. I've kept the same. What's so crazy is I've kept the same account this whole time. I've only just recently converted it. <laughs> what, to Robin Hood? <laughs> no, no. I've only recently converted it to just a solely my account. My grandma's oh, no, been no, connected. Your the whole time. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah E-Trade was like, hey, you're an adult now. You you don't need a custodial account. So we're gonna, you know, I was like, okay, I guess it's time to give it up. Yeah. So what were some of those mistakes? I mean, you just sort of uh, briefly um, brushed yeah, no, over I, them, but uh, let's focus on a couple of those mistakes. Yeah, absolutely. So, I mean, I think the biggest mistake is kind of buying into you know, other people's education, right. In a way that they're, they're selling you a dream as opposed to solutions. And that's where people kind of get messed up in this business. They're, they're thinking that there is some kind of answer to like get them rich faster than just letting your money compound where you get rich faster is on the outside. And I think that there's all these guys that have, you know, nice cars, nice boats, beautiful women, and they sell the allure of success and in reality, you know, oftentimes some of these people just have maxed out Amex cards and they're just selling their coursework. That's where they really make their money. So, 
you know, it's not even their trading that's good. And yeah, I fell for that, you know, bought some, you know, $1,200 master classes to make you good at trading. And it's the same thing you can get on Investopedia. You just have to spend the time. Like I said, cutting your teeth is so important, right? And that's, that's kind of what it was for me. I kept trying to buy those things occasionally. Timothy Sykes is the most notorious one. There's a few other like signal provider people that I've fallen for. And that's just, you know, pure laziness, right? Trying to just get stock picks fed to me. So, so that's really important though. That's, um, that's one of the things I keep on going on about this podcast is you can't depend on stock tips. Like, okay, you might get a really good stock tip and you make uh, a great deal of money out of it, but where do you move to next? Or you can just be losing a lot of money as well and, you know, scare you off for the, the whole process. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that that's kind of the, the big thing is it, it starts a confirmation bias. Not only, yeah, you don't want to be dependent and you want to have your own investment thesis, but if you do good, you know, I'm saying that there are good stock pickers. They will make mistakes eventually. And who knows where you're at on the risk to reward scale? Because so many times I've like, you know, been on a hot streak and started scaling up my positions and which is already a critical mistake. But, you know, if you're dependent on somebody, you know, like when I was 14 years old, I was really dependent on Timothy Sykes to like give me my picks and I've had success. Right. And then eventually there was this point where I was so confident in his picks that I would, was doubling down on my positions and yeah, it will blow up your account so fast. Right. But it gets that confidence going and you're like, this guy has to be right. He's making millions. Look at his, look at his cars, look at his stuff. But really <laughs> the millions come from me paying every month. <laughs> That's right. He could. He wouldn't have to do what he was doing if he uh, was making millions on the market himself, would he? I mean, yeah, that's absolutely. The, the, the uh, subtext on that. So, have you moved it more into understanding more about fundamentals and studying the fundamentals of businesses as you've gotten older? Yeah, absolutely. I, I think that it, it kind of came with uh, some tenure in the corporate world, right? You see how businesses operate, and you see how massively important it is to them. You know all the financial metrics and how they run their business on gross margin and things like that. You know, just economic fundamentals. And yeah, it, it started to make sense to me. It's like, yeah, there are companies that are vastly superior. It doesn't matter, you know, what they look like on the the Reddit board or whatever. You know, these companies are good, and you want to own them, and that's where you can make money, right? It, like especially in dividends. I think there's a lot of times people are just like, oh, that's old and played out, and they see growth. And now we're looking at inflation, right? So like the fundamentals are starting to really come back into play. And yeah, just as I've gotten older, I've just started to like get more patient, right? And I like to always say that patience is spelt with a Y. Take your time and you'll get paid. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. So in your bio, you mentioned that you've um, founded a couple of startups. Can you tell us about those? Yeah. So I guess the the first, I've really been kind of on the, like the, the support side. So the first one is a, a kid I grew up with. Uh, he had an ag project that was really cool. We were making some custom stereos and, uh, you know, there were CNC metal boxes. Really, really interesting thing. You know, we'd go in and we'd put like acrylic plastic that was opaque and LED light strips and basically a 12 volt car audio system 
we'd put it in these boxes and put kind of soundproofing in them so people could, you know, move them around, right? So they're portable and they were, you know, really flashy. They're made for stock shows. And uh, for most people that aren't aware what a stock show is, it's like at the county fair when they have those cows and there's a huge, big old business and there's lots of money in it and people want to come look at my cattle, buy my, buy my babies, and you might have the next big winner. So yeah, we started selling those stereos kind of in that, in that space. And we were really successful and, you know, we eventually got a buyout offer. And at the time, Austin was 17 and I was 19 and it was like a good time for us to move on. He was going into a senior year and it's like, you know, we, we sold about 40 of them and they were about 5,000 bucks a piece. So <laughs> fantastic. Good margin. Was there a good margin? Yeah. Um, well, you know, a couple of kids running a manufacturing business, uh, we weren't running off margin. We were just seeing the money come in and we were buying supplies. And, you know, fortunately for us, we, we built those relationships calling the suppliers. We, one day we were like, Hey, let's just stop ordering them for the retail store. And we just started calling the companies and they're like, yeah, you know, fill out a form and show us kind of what your accounts receivable looks like. And we started sending our bank statements. They're like, Oh yeah, you will give you, you know, net 30 days. And, it just started rolling. So it was very interesting, you know, but I think it, our, our best stereo that we built had to run a margin of around 18%, which is pretty solid. But for the most part, we were making like five or 6% on those things, if anything. <laughs> and not taking into account all the time that you must really <laughs> spent soldering. <laughs> yeah. But th- at the same time, you know, we created a brand, right. And, and that's eventually gave us the platform to launch, you know, a mass produced version. Right. And so we, we reached out, to a Chinese manufacturing company and, you know, made a smaller portable Bluetooth speaker that was plastic and aluminum, right? So very small, maybe about eight inches long by about five inches tall. And so this is a much smaller. And we started a pre-order program and that just, you know, the brand took off from there. And yeah, we were like, you know what? Maybe these guys that were interested before in like kind of our process before we were really like serious about the business, they're like, yeah, we'd buy all the equipment off of you and, you know, help us, you know, learn over a couple of weeks. And that's what we did. So then Austin went back to high school and I was, I was out on my own and I was like, all right, what's next for me? You know, that was really fun. We, you know, I met like Mike Ditka at a leadership conference and got to meet some really great people, the president of PayPal at the time. It was awesome, right? I mean, I was a young guy and it just really got me started. We didn't make a lot of money and we didn't get super rich off the first one, but what we did give us a bunch of experience and kind of that, you know, Hey, this is possible. And so, yeah, that from there, I, I went into the oil and gas business. It's kind of the family thing. My, my granddad worked for an oil company for 40 years, and he had a lot of connections that hadn't quite retired yet. And uh, I took a job opportunity out in Midland, Texas, which is, if everyone knows, is kind of the armpit of the world, but also, you know, the place where oil comes from. So, yeah, and it was booming at the time. I, it was 2017, and things were really starting to look up. After, you know, things had really capitulated in 2016, it was, there was some optimism. And so, yeah, it, I got moving out there. I was working as a lease operator. So basically just producing oil out of the ground, keeping wells running, um, took kind of a night job where I'd go work on the drilling rigs and run casing because, man, the money was just there and it was this awesome. And did that for a while and, you know, just got experience, started meeting people in the business and, yeah, got an offer for a startup company running their operations there in Midland and in Houston. 
And yeah, we started to really take market share in the steel business. There's a lot of steel. So just go, just back up a sec. Yeah. You, you got an opportunity to what, to uh, join the startup company? Is that yeah. The, the case? Yeah. Yeah. So, mm. yeah. so they, uh, they asked me if I was interested in coming on and I was like, yeah, absolutely. You know, I wanted to get into materials and I thought it'd be an interesting place, you know. And what did it, what was it doing? Uh, so what we would sell is like, uh, pipe valves and fittings. So, yeah. uh, you know. Pipeline has a lot of pipe valves. And so just steel products. Um, it's massively, you know, it's the infrastructure, right? So got into that and it's distribution. And so started to learn about the distribution business. And I just think that like for me, all these experiences were kind of just nuggets, right? Just picking up a little bit here and there. And it's really culminated into where I'm at now. So that was very successful. Then the oil market busted out and, you know, it's cyclical. So learned, mm-hmm. you know, that. No matter how good everything was going a few a cycle ago, it doesn't matter in the now, right? And uh, that's why it matters about fundamentals in your stocks that you invest in because, you know, you don't want just one down period to take the company you're invested in out, right? And uh, these highly leveraged businesses, that can happen, right? And so that's why we want to invest in, you know, quality companies. And that's why it's so important. And I think people have kind of, you know, deviated from looking at the fundamentals and they're just seeing the hype. And that worries me hmm. because I look at some of these companies and, you know, if things do go bad, they, they won't be able to, you know, they can't burn cash that long to weather yep. the storm. So that's what's so important. And just those kind of things just kind of started picking up. And, um, well, when yeah, you say, so, when you say, just um, wanted to back up here and find out yeah. about highly leveraged, what do you mean by highly leveraged companies? Yeah. So there, there are a lot of ways that companies can take out leverage, right? So through senior debt, through equity financing, you know, diluting their share structure. It's basically, we, it's basically debt, isn't it? Yeah. 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 I think what a it's lot like of having, It's like an individual having too much on their credit card, you know, and then getting into trouble when the cash flow stops or you lose your job. Exactly. I think a lot of people, I see these share offerings all the time. And what people don't realize is, you know, hey, they're, they're actually diluting, you know, your ownership. You're owning substantially more while they're taking in money from the equity holders. So- that those are those are the things that you have to watch out for, right? When people start to hit the doors, right? As how levered these companies are, and there are a multitude of ways for companies to secure debt. But the most important thing is just to realize, you know, kind of what their balance sheet looks like, and it's right there, right? If you look at your 10k, you can see what you need to see. And that, that's the thing about investing in a good company is that everyone um, who works in that company is working on your behalf as a shareholder. It's not, that's so much more than just a ticker code, isn't it? Yeah, I think, yeah. So many times that we just see kind of the, the squigglies on the screen and you're like, oh, you know, they're doing really good the last, you know, few quarters. But then you like go in there and you kind of crack the nut and you sort of say, well, I don't know if I really see what's going on. And then there are some companies that their line is kind of flat, but their dividend yield super high. And you're like, oh, hey, let me look at this company and everything's rock solid, you know, really smart group of guys. They're, you know, taking more and more market share, but you, they're, they're not on CNBC every day and they're not on the Reddit boards and you got to find those gyms and they're getting increasingly harder to find these days, right? The trades are getting more and more crowded, more and more investors are bringing up valuations and that's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just kind of changing, you know, the metrics and the, the sort of the guardrails, right? Like what makes a good company in this, these low interest rate environments, you know, for me, it's it's debt focused, right? Because as soon as rates start to climb back up, you know, we're going to see that kind of hit the door. Companies are going to start, you know. So is default. that part of is that part of your screening process now? Is how much leverage, how much debt a company has? Yeah, 
Yeah. So I think that right now, as we go into kind of this inflationary period, you know, one would say, hey, well, they've got this debt at this for a certain price and, you know, it's locked in there. And I'm saying, well, it's more of the kind of the story of the interest rates, right? How can they service new debt? At, you know, because some of these companies, their growth plan is solely based off of getting money from the outside. It has nothing to do with saving what they make. It's about getting more money from the outside. So yeah, for me, that's what I look at these days is really, you know, how much debt does this company have? You know, are they a zombie? If if we do go into hyperinflation and, you know, consumers start spending less, right, as they had to, you know, flock towards staples and they're not buying, you know, AirPods anymore, right, that's going to change the game. I love Apple, though. I mean, they sit on a lot of cash. They're definitely not the same. The bonds that they ride out, they're gold, right? So. These <laughs> yeah, are, that's right. Yeah. <laughs> these are more companies that you kind of would find on the Russell 2000 or on the like, you know, the lower side of the NASDAQ, right? I, yeah. Blue chip stocks, you know, the money talks and, you know, BS kind of walks in the game, right? So that, I say that about Tesla too. And, you know, everybody says, well, they, you know, make most of their money off tax credits. Well, at the end of the day, every time I've gone short on Tesla, I've lost. So <laughs> I, I, I'm, I'm done. I'm done trying to guess that thing and uh, just follow the money, right? So tell us about moving into mergers and acquisitions. Okay, so you're um, you're with this gas and pipeline company, and now a couple of years later, you've got a, a consulting business for mergers and acquisitions. Tell us about that move and what mergers and acquisitions actually are. Yeah, I think that that's a they're really that's a really scary term. You know, you think merger, and it just sounds like putting two companies together and acquisition. You know, buying a company out, right? But it, there are so many more nuances than that, right? I think that. These transactions can be completely, you know, all over the board between joint ventures, partnerships, complete buyouts, spinoffs. There's so much jargon. It's a very jargon-based business. But to kind of like discuss, you know, getting started, um, me and some guys in Midland, you know, we were, we knew that we wanted to start our own business and that that was kind of the way to really get to financial independence. If you really look at it, you know, working for somebody, no matter what position you have, if you're number two or number one, you know, that's the only way to do it is if you are the owner, the principal director. So, yeah, we wanted to start a consultancy business where we could kind of just do some side work. Right. And, uh, you know, we were we were going for about eight months. And this last kind of oil bust that happened with covid, uh, my business partner, he got laid off. And I've been going at Mariah full time, you know, working with some of our startup clients and just kind of doing some ad hoc stuff. And when he got laid off, he went to, you know, go talk to his vendors. He was an engineer. So, he, you know, when he was working on projects, he'd have vendors and, you know, built relationships over the last six years with these people. And so he's going to say his goodbyes, you know, and say, hey, look, you know, my, my tenure there is over. And uh, he approached this older couple that he'd worked with the entire time he was there. And they're like, hey, so what are you going to do? You know? We're, we want to retire. Would you want to take over our business? And he's like, well, no, I, me and some of my friends, we have a consulting practice and uh, we're kind of getting in you know, the deal business. And they're like, well, do you think you could sell our company? And uh, you know, being the ambitious guy and kind of knowing this, you know, that there is, yes. <laughs> there is something there, right? We said, yeah. So you know, we put a discounted cash flow analysis together and uh, started doing like seller's discretionary type models. So a lot of financial modeling goes into this, you know, taking the P&L and basically, you know, getting some averages and taking some metrics and just trending everything and doing ad backs, right? Sometimes, you know, these business owners, small business owners, you know, they pay themselves a lot and they, they buy themselves vehicles and things like that. And if somebody's going to take them over, that doesn't matter, right? So 
Well, we, we knew all of that going into this, you know, what, how to look at the financials and kind of work around them. And so, yeah, we took, took the deal on the road and taking the deal on the road is how you meet people. Um, we started, you know, just reaching out to private equity groups that, you know, owned oil field service companies. And they were like, no, but actually I know a guy and this is how you should do this. If you want to, you know, have a little bit more success. And we've just kind of, you know, I like to say it's a God thing. We, the door kind of just opened up for us and uh, now we're in this space. And it's just one thing that I, I like to say, it's, it's part of my like 11, 11 rules of life. Every morning I wake up, I have these 11 rules. One of them is own ignorance, right? I'm not a you know seasoned practitioner in M&A or investment banking. I accept that. And there are a lot of people that are that are willing to help younger people like myself or even your listeners that are interested in starting any kind of business. There are so many, you know, experienced people that are willing to help, you know, do you have the ambition to do it? People will help you. And so, yeah, took this deal and they were like, Hey, you guys are awesome. You know, it's so crazy that you, you know, came up kind of from the dirt. When you think about M&A and investment banking, it's the ivory tower. So people from the oil fields, it's, you know, we're, we're nobodies to them. Yeah, you, you didn't know. go. You didn't go to one of the business schools or anything, did you? <laughs> no, no. Yeah, I actually dropped out of school. So it's really crazy, you know, <laughs> yeah. to work with people that went to Stanford and Wharton, and you know, and it's what we found is like there is a commonality in in just the fundamentals, right? And that's what brings us together as investors. There are rules that we can abide by that work, and they're time tested, and that's how we do it. And you know, we share that etiquette now. I, you know, I'm starting to pick it up a lot more. You know short experience and passing it on to my consultants. But yeah, it's just kind of, you know, it's, I hate to say a good old boys system because that implies, you know, you, you can't get in, but there's just some rules that you follow. And that's what we're doing for people is, you know, giving them an opportunity to get into M&A and try it out. But yeah, we've just had an open mind and we listen to what people are doing and where they're at in their business cycle. And they've, some people need money. Other people want to sell their business. And we just try to create relationships and learn as we go. And, you know, I don't think it, I don't think we're putting ourselves in a position to make mistakes. Um, we're actually, you know, creating the most value because we're seeking the best people to help us with these challenges. So it's really awesome, actually, you know, is by not knowing, you know, we're actually doing a lot more than if we might have known, I think. Right. If we'd have been some associates or analysts from investment banks, I think we'd had kind of our mindset set in one direction, whereas we're taking a culmination of operating professionals plus investment banking professionals. And kind of getting the best of both worlds. You own your own ignorance. Yeah, exactly. And, <laughs> and it's working every day. And, you know, I think that's like one of the things when, when we, we talked about getting on the show together, it's like, ah, uh, shares for beginners, you know, I, I love stocks and it's how I got into business. I think if I, if I would have not been interested in the stock market and the recession wouldn't have been going on, you know, I think I would have been, you know, uh, a science, you know, science type person and went more into like botany or something like that. I, I love my garden and, you yeah. know, but I think that if it wouldn't have been for business, you know, I wouldn't have eventually got here. And now I'm starting to kind of, you know, stocks are great and it is a component to your financial success. And now I was like, you know, Hey, I can talk about, you know, freeing up, you know, your investment criteria beyond just a few ticker symbols and realizing that you can invest in your whole life. You know, there, there are way there are way more outlets than just the market to like, you know, have investments in, and they're not just for rich people. How did that uh, initial deal end up? What was the outcome? 
Uh, well, they decided that they didn't want to retire. They saw that there was a lot of money and people were interested in their business. And they're like, hey, maybe we wait a couple of years. Oil prices are going up. This this was last year. Oil yeah. prices were on the rebound. So they were like, oh, well, I think we'll stay in. And we were like, yeah, <laughs> hey, that, that's a lot of value for them. You know, I think we we brought them a real quantitative answer to their question was like, how much money can we get for our business? Can we retire? You know, we found the value. We got some comparable transactions. And they said, uh, there's a little bit more left on the table. Maybe we'll wait a little bit longer. And that's doing our clients a solid. So that's another thing about these deals, right, is uh, a lot of times you'll see that there are mergers and acquisition discussions going on, you know, and th- there's a little buzz on the news. And you're like, hmm, that's interesting. And the deals ultimately don't come together either for regulatory reasons, which that's a whole nother gamut. But sometimes they just fizzle out because they realize that, hey, there's more opportunity if we just continue to grow our product, you know, internally, that we could get more money down the road. Or, you know, as crazy as it sounds, business people do have feelings too, and they might not, you know, like the people that want to buy them out or partner with them. And, you know, we've come across that a lot is, you know, things might be going really good uh, in terms of financial negotiations, but then it comes down to like, hey, well, we're thinking about laying off a bunch of the people that work here and outsourcing. And then it's like, you know, as a business owner, they're like, hey, we built this. Yeah, these are, these are our family. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. So that, that's why sometimes you see on the news these big mega deals fall apart is because, hey, look, things just don't line up and, you know, they go really far and the public gets excited. And what we realize is it's nuanced, right? It's not just about the money a lot of times. And, you know, we got to think about the shareholders, right? And that's their, that's their perspective. So you mentioned private equity. What is private equity and what's their role with uh, mergers and acquisitions? Yeah. So, I mean, the the best way to think about it are not public companies, right? So uh, you drive down the street every day and most of the businesses you see are small private enterprises. They're owned by- They're not listed on stock exchanges. Yeah, exactly. And you you Mm. you wonder, hey, why can't I invest in John Q barbecue, right? Well, you can, but they're, it's, it's a little different, right? And, uh, you know, it just comes through private equity. And uh, that's simply what it is. Um, in, the, in the case that you, what you're asking me is most of the time it's a group of, you know, very wealthy people or, you know, well-financed people that can, you know, get access to capital and they make, you know, large majority investments in private businesses. And uh, essentially their goal is to either turn them around or add them to an existing company that they already own. So essentially, these people are just investing in businesses that aren't on the public markets. And um, yeah, that's it sounds like such a scary club term, but private equity is just ownership in companies that aren't traded on the public stock market. Yeah, so. that's, a, that's a very nice uh, definition. So really, mergers and acquisitions, the way that you're speaking about it, it sounds like it's really putting a spotlight on the fundamentals of a company. And as you say, it might even inspire the owners to go, hang on, this is a pretty good business. <laughs> Why would I even want to sell it? Yeah, exactly. I, I think that that's, that's the part, right, is, you know, as consultants, when we get into these projects, you know, we're like, okay, you know, we get the, the P&L and we get the balance sheet. And then there's like a whole slew of questions that are, you know, qualitative. And they start to even crack even deeper into the fundamentals, like employer retention programs, process and procedure, things that you wouldn't normally get from, you know, your investment perspectives, unless you were spending every quarterly report and actually going through and following these projects, right? You miss that a lot of times. And when you're buying businesses or you're selling businesses, you're looking at these features to like, you know, really complement and really bring out all the value you can. So that that's like, yeah, it, that's really all it is, is you're 
getting everything that isn't like, you know, subjective and like, oh, this business is great. You know, that's so good. We make money. No, it's more like, hey, this is exactly, you know, kind of our run rate. This is our EBITDA. This is our gross margin, you know, inventory days on hand, things like that. And that's it. And that everyone makes their decision based off of, you know, quantitative metrics. I mean, we kind of like to add a qualitative twist because you and I both know that humans, it's not just numbers and digits, right? There, there are great leaders and there are great people, not only at, in the board level, but, you know, on the ground floor too. And so we want that to kind of come to the forefront as well. So Hunter, how can people get in touch with you or find out more about you? Yeah. So uh, you can find me at mariah-consulting.com. Or find me on LinkedIn at Hunter Alamand. That's A-L-L-E-M-A-N-D. And uh, I'm always open to discuss, you know, business opportunities. If it's a startup, you're interested in selling your business, raising capital, or simply just, you know, learning a little bit more about the space or even working in M&A. Mariah is constantly, you know, devoted to hiring, you know, talent, not just from investment banking, but from a multitude of industries. I think that those perspectives and really help, you know, our transactions move along and create real value for our clients. So yeah, you can reach out to me on social media or on our website. Fantastic, Hunter. Thank you very much for your time today. Yeah, Phil, this was a great one. Stocks for Beginners is for information and educational purposes only. It isn't financial advice, and you shouldn't buy or sell any investments based on what you've heard here. Any opinion or commentary is the view of the speaker only, not Stocks for Beginners. This podcast doesn't replace professional advice regarding your personal financial needs, circumstances, or current situation. Thanks to Christopher Sulas for music production out of Garlic Breath Studio. Remember, music flows when the money don't. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well, HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started.